Iraq is an oil-rich country, but despite all that wealth, public services like hospitals are failing. There's corruption. Political parties siphon off state funds for their own projects. Two years ago, that all led to a massive protest movement across Iraq. At least 40 people were killed and 2,000 injured in protests across the country on Friday. Security forces used live rounds and tear gas against demonstrators. At those demonstrations, security forces and militias killed hundreds of people. But the movement also led to some change. It forced the country's prime minister out of office, and the government conceded to hold a parliamentary election in October, months ahead of schedule. That election provided a kind of snapshot of a democracy that the U.S. has invested in for decades now and that many Iraqis have fought desperately to improve. It's very sad because my father and brother, it's here now killed. Mustafa Rasi is a medic who spoke to NPR in Baghdad just before the election. He said his father and brother were among those shot in the protests. He was arrested and held for a week. A better Iraq is worth people sacrificing themselves for, he said. So what did those sacrifices accomplish? Iraq's parliamentary election happened earlier this month, and turnout was a record low. Some of the groups that called for that election in the first place ended up boycotting it. This election, uh, they will cheat, they will use their money, they will have uh, corrupt money, of course. And Ali Hadid was one of the organizers of the demonstrations two years ago. Before this month's vote, he told NPR that he thought Iraq's powerful political parties would rig the election. There is no uh, a clean ele election in Iraq. That's for that we, we don't believe this. Over the summer when the U.S. withdrew from Afghanistan, a fragile democracy imploded in days. But Iraq is another country where Americans have spent billions of dollars and people have died trying to build a government that works. Consider this. Iraq's recent election raises the question, has the investment paid off? From NPR, I'm Ari Shapiro. It's Thursday, October 28th. This message comes from NPR sponsor VMware. With app, cloud, security, and workspace solutions, VMware helps companies navigate change, meeting them where they are and getting them where they want to be faster. VMware. Welcome change. It's Consider This from NPR. In the weeks leading up to Election Day on October 10th, some people in Iraq had a sense of hope. Roadsides were crowded with campaign posters. The government brought in hundreds of election observers from the United Nations and European countries. Top clerics called for people to vote. 29-year-old Mohammed Abdel Sahar told NPR ahead of the vote he works in a bicycle store making $14 a day. The protests happened so that we could see change in the elections. So now the elections matter. He wanted to vote for someone who would focus on public services, like electricity and water, someone with a new voice in politics. The old parties and the old rulers, we know them now. We tried them and they didn't change anything. But on election night, if you were watching the results roll in on Iraqi television, one thing quickly became clear. Many of the old parties and old rulers in Iraq's government would stay right where they were. The party of Muqtada al-Sadr, a populist Shia cleric, emerged in the lead. And for all the talk about hope and optimism, turnout was just 41 percent. 
In a Baghdad polling place that day, in a mostly empty room with a few listless staff members, a voter named Lubna Karim spoke to NPR. She said she voted for a candidate with little hope of winning because she wanted to send a message that, like so many other Iraqis, she has lost trust in the nation's political leaders. Lubna said her daughter came with her to the polls and wanted to send the same message, but she did so by spoiling her ballot, basically making it unusable. Millions more Iraqis simply stayed home. So what explains the underlying failures in Iraq that led to such widespread disillusionment? Well, some of it goes back to the system the U.S. put in place after it invaded the country in 2003. The system was meant to ensure Iraq's many ethnic groups and religious sects have a voice in the government. Iraq's prime minister, for instance, is always Shia. Its president, always Kurdish. In practice, this system has created a lot of problems. Lahib Hagel with the International Crisis Group told NPR, in Iraq, every group basically looks out for itself. The reason why we don't have money actually going into state funds and being allocated to the public good is because these parties need to diverge much of of these funds to sustain these patronage networks and ensure that they remain loyal to them. In addition to, of course, a lot of it simply evaporating in, in corruption. Everything you just heard came from the reporting of our colleague, NPR international correspondent Ruth Sherlock. She spent weeks in Iraq before, during, and after the election. In a few minutes, we'll talk with her about what that election revealed about the direction of the country and America's investment in it. But first, here's a closer look at one candidate who bucked the trend, a reformer who leads a party that's been fighting against corruption and for better public services. He won a seat in Parliament, and on the day after Iraq's election, Ruth Sherlock asked him what he plans to do with his new power. Newly elected Ala al-Rikabi lives in a neat, modest home in the poor southern Iraqi city of Nasiriya. Canary birds chirp from a cage by the entrance. Lovely birds. Thank you very much. It's the day after election results were announced, delivering Rukabi's political party, Imtidad, nine seats in the new parliament. Nine out of 329 seats might not sound like a lot, but in Iraq, where parliament has been dominated by establishment politicians, even Rukabi himself seems a little surprised by the result. Well, our plan was to fight even with one seat. Rukabi is a doctor in his 40s with a gentle but serious demeanour. His party was formed out of mass protests in 2019. He treated some of the wounded as more than 600 people were killed by militias and security forces in the weeks of demonstrations. This is the Iraqi situation. We are fighting against political parties that are most likely political gangs and militias. They are deeply rooted. They have financial efforts all over my country. They, they almost steal every dollar. Rakabi reels off figures about Iraq's wealth, sometimes $100 billion in annual oil revenue. Yet, extreme poverty continues. Till now, we are now in 2021, and uh, the only source of water in a village can be a well. It's insane. We are, we are living in a country that is one of the richest in the world. 
Rukabi wants his party to be a fly in the ointment, exposing corruption by the main political powers. In Parliament, he can demand answers from government ministries. By law, the minister himself cannot say, no, I will not give you any information. He cannot say this, and I can't bring him to the Parliament to investigate with him. It's a dangerous ambition. In Iraq, people are regularly assassinated for less bold statements than the ones Rukabi makes in our interview. We are living in a continuous threat. We can be died now every day, in any time. Uh, it's, it's now quite usual for me and for my family. They are expecting me in any time, once I get out, for anything that I may not come back alive. Ultimately, Rukabi's party wants to change the very structure of Iraqi politics. Since the US invasion in 2003, Iraq's top political posts have been apportioned by sect and ethnicity. It's meant to share power. But, Rukabi says, ultimately the system actually encourages corruption and division. The sectarian system is problematic and encourage uh, you are uh, Shia, you are Sunni, you are Arabic. You are Rukabi wants instead a political system where the public votes directly for a prime minister or a president, no matter their sect. Just like the American system, just like the system in most of the European countries, this is also a call that's becoming popular among Iraq's large, younger generation. Rukabi says he knows it's a major challenge that requires more seats in parliament. He's reaching out to other smaller independent political parties that won seats to collaborate, and he's already making plans for the next election in 2025. If, he says, he survives that long. That's NPR's Ruth Sherlock, who's with us now. Hi, Ruth. Hi, Ari. So we started this episode with the question, has America's investment in building a democratic Iraq paid off? This is obviously big, it's complicated, it's difficult to answer, but based on all the voices we just heard, it sounds like maybe the answer is not really. Well, look, a lot of this goes back to what you heard earlier. The US helped set up the Iraqi state with a quota system that shares out power between different sects. That sounds good in theory, but in practice, what you wind up with is a government that's not really focused on good national governance. In fact, many people tell us that you now have poverty and public services that are worse than before the US-led invasion in 2003. Many poor areas, even of the capital Baghdad, basically don't get municipal services. And we saw that firsthand. We visited this one place where there were pools of raw sewage in the street. And we haven't even talked about groups like ISIS, which have made life a lot worse for people there over the years. Yeah, ISIS and Iranian-backed militias have added to the challenge of governing the country for a long time now. How do those groups fit into this picture? Well, it really complicates everything. So the US fought ISIS with air power and by working with Iraqi troops, and Iran also built up these militias that fought the group. Now ISIS is mostly defeated, but the Iranian-backed militias remain this powerful presence, and many operate kind of independently of the Iraqi state. They've been accused of being involved with kidnapping and assassination of activists, and their presence has really boosted Iran's influence in the country. Is there any hope of the situation improving after this election, particularly given the success of some reformist candidates like the one we just heard from? 
Well, Likari, the truth is that a lot of international actors in Iraq, including, I think, the US, seem to be in no hurry to change the status quo. The US and other Western governments will be quietly pleased, for example, by the victory of the party of Muqtada al-Sadr, this uh, Shiite cleric that's very populist. Al-Sadr once actually led an insurgency against US forces uh, after the 2003 invasion. But these days he's softened that stance and instead presents himself as a kind of nationalist who says he's also going to counter Iranian influence. And that's a priority for the US. The status quo is also a way of keeping a kind of stability in Iraq. And the last thing the Biden administration wants is a new crisis in Iraq after the chaotic US pullout from Afghanistan. And it also allows, you know, the US to keep some American troops in the country in some form and to continue to have influence in Iraq, which after all is a place that has a lot of strategic importance in the Middle East. So the election was earlier this month, and now the parties are in negotiations to see who will control various ministries and how the coalitions will take shape. As somebody who's covered Iraq and the region for years, what are you thinking watching this process unfold about the country's future, about the U.S. role there, particularly given what we just saw in Afghanistan? One stark takeaway for me has been the real gap between what the U.S. and other international powers want and what most Iraqis we spoke to want. The U.S. seems to prioritize trying to maintain basic stability and countering Iran, like we just said. Meanwhile, Iraqis want better public services and an end to corruption and actual representation by their government. And the thing is, many Iraqis, especially young people nowadays, see that changing the sectarian structure of government, the underlying foundations, and weakening the main political parties is kind of the only way to achieve this, even if it means risking some stability. At a recent anti-government protest, I spoke with Ali Hadid. You heard from him a little earlier. He was campaigning to boycott the election. There's no democracy in Iraq. There is no democracy. So this is this political system. It's a mafia. We are rolling by mafia. That's that's all. Do you think um, Do you think this is basically what the Americans brought to Iraq? Yeah, uh, it's not just an American. It's also the Iranian and uh, also the international. All of them they they participate in this problem. And you know what's also striking is speaking to people who were born around the time of the U.S. invasion and seeing how their whole lives have been shaped by that decision. For example, I spoke with one young man and his first memory is hiding in the shower of his home with his family as U.S. troops fight a militia and the house gets destroyed around them. Now the poor economy and state corruption means that even as a university graduate, he can't find a job and he's had friends killed by militias. Look, of course, you can't blame all of Iraq's problems on the U.S. involvement there. It's much more complicated than that. But certainly the decision to evade Iraq set off a kind of chain reaction of events that continue to shape the broken Iraq you have today. That's NPR's Ruth Sherlock. Thank you for your reporting. Thank you. There are links to more of her stories from Iraq in our episode notes. Special thanks to Ruth and editor Mark Katkoff for their help with this episode. It's Consider This from NPR. I'm Ari Shapiro.